Karen Dumain, the professional lead for Duo D. Before my co-lead, Paul Taylor-Pitt, left, we recorded this fabulous podcast series talking to world leaders and experts in OD. The Duo D podcast is brought to you by NHS Employers in partnership with NHS England. I'm Karen Dumain. And I'm Paul Taylor-Pitt. And we're delighted to host this new podcast series exploring OD as the world emerges from a pandemic. In this series, we'll talk about complexity and possibility, change and uncertainty. The voices you hear are experts in OD, each bringing their own unique perspectives to the challenges we face doing OD in the NHS. You'll hear advice on how we as OD practitioners can nudge our systems forward, be catalysts for change and amplify the humanity in our organisations. We'll hear from specialists in complexity, organisation design and gestalt theory, as well as from OD experts in different sectors and other countries. So why a podcast and why now? In July 2021, the UK government lifted restrictions on daily life that had been in place for over a year in response to COVID-19. On what the media called Freedom Day, we saw the biggest set of changes to the rules on how we had been living during the pandemic. It was like a window was opening onto the world and we were encouraged to take a deep breath and begin to emerge again. We started thinking about this podcast in the summer of 2021, where, contrary to the media narrative, little had changed for the NHS. Our services were experiencing winter in summer and the relentless pace of work was having a huge impact on the well-being of our staff as well as dealing with fundamental shifts in how services were delivered. Add to this a country emerging from the ongoing challenges of Brexit and a general public recalibrating their relationship to work and the workplace. It was quite a moment in time. Our ambition at DuoD has always been to keep our feet firmly on the ground while also looking up, translating theory into practice and bringing new thinking into our profession. So in July last year, we sent out an invitation to some of the most brilliant OD thinkers and practitioners in the world asking for their help. We set off with a single question. How can OD make a difference in the NHS and the wider world? This podcast series is our attempt to answer that. The conversations took place over several months, from autumn of 2021 to spring 2022, in what became a continuation of the most disruptive and demanding period of our recent working lives, maybe even ever. Every conversation we ever have is a Polaroid snapshot of the moment in time it takes place, and these conversations you'll hear in the podcast are no exception. They are dispatches from a pandemic, messages in a bottle thrown into stormy waters. They are a series of lights shining into a dark sky, small moments of hope and encouragement. In future episodes, you'll hear from very special guests, Sheena Cartwright, Linda Holbeach, Mian Chung-Judge, Vilma Nikolaidu and Naomi Stanford, as we discuss doing OD in the NHS, the power of possibility. We're delighted that we are launching the series with a conversation with Glenda Eon. Glenda is the CEO of the Human Systems Dynamics Institute and she joins us today to discuss OD in a time of uncertainty. We need a radically different way to think about planning, where we focus on questions as much as answers. In a time when organisation structures are breaking down, how can we support individuals to build their adaptive capacity to learn? As you'll hear, Glenda encourages us to see complexity as a practice 
using the power of possibility to move forward. My name is Glenda O. Young, and in the late 1980s, I got interested in complexity and how it affects human systems. And so fast forward to today, and I have an international network of about 900 people who've studied with me. And our shared concern is how do we, working in complex human systems, midst of change, how do we see patterns of what's happening in the moment? How do we understand them in ways that are useful and productive and life-giving? And then how do we take action to have an influence to move us forward? And so I'm really excited today to share with you some of the things that I'm seeing about the future possibilities in organization development and also what I'm seeing globally. That's great to have you, Glenda, and uh, to hear your voice and the conversation. And I was just thinking the spread of your connections across the globe and I was wondering what, how through COVID had that had increased and who you'd been connecting with? Well, in some ways, COVID accelerated the international aspect of our work. And what we're seeing is that individuals from lots of different places are coming together to explore together. So one of the most exciting things was that in March of 2020, we had been doing a lot of work with healthcare clients, and we knew that they were going to be overrun with COVID. And so we tried to think about what we could do with the smallest slice of time and still to be able to give them some support with the wicked issues they'd be looking at. And so we started then and have done every day, Monday through Friday, a power of questions process where someone brings a wicked issue. And we ask them questions to open their minds, but not to invite answers. And then we reflect and then we close. It's 30 minutes, Monday through Friday. It has been delightful. I think today will be 392, session 392. Uh, lots of different wicked issues. But what that has done is to bring individuals from many different places into one space, into a community that's been quite fun and emergent and and useful and i mean my sense of it glenda is that we live in a world that really privileges answers they're seen as the thing we should all have how is it for people who maybe don't come to a conclusion or get an answer to a challenging question so at first they're very skeptical they say you're going to have us do what and within three or four questions they realize that the questions are opening up and transforming the problem as they saw it. And they realized that in such complex times, we tend to get locked in to a very narrow understanding of what the problem is. And in that understanding, there is no solution. But by listening to the questions, that solution space opens up. It is almost as if you're letting air into it. And in that expanded space, you have lots of possibilities for options, for action, and places to go. The most extreme case, I think, was a conference that I did in China. And the conference sponsor was really in love with this process that we call Power of Questions. And so she invited four executives 
two from global companies and two from Chinese national companies on a panel to engage each other in power of questions. And they were so nervous and so concerned and so really thought this was going to be very strange. And they got started and we couldn't make, we couldn't stop them. They kept asking questions. They were so excited and they realized that it just opens up possibility. So thinking and talking about it is really scary, but doing it is just opening uh, minds and hearts. And so I'm picturing Glenda in the 1980s, bold colors, maybe big hair, and wondering when you look back at that time, what did you know about complexity then? And how has your understanding of it changed over the past four decades? It hasn't really changed in its outline, but it's gotten more and more clear on the inside. So at that point, what I knew was it was a way to think and work with discipline when you couldn't predict and control. So we used to think that discipline or doing good work was about, as you say, answers and having control and being able to predict. And at that point, what I saw was that this was an approach, a a discipline, a practice for taking responsible action, even when you weren't in control and couldn't predict. And strangely enough, at that point, nobody really cared, Paul. In the late 80s, everybody thought I was crazy. (laughs) If you don't have answers, it's your problem, lady. Why don't you just get busy and go to a project management class and everything will be okay. Um, But since the early 2000s, more and more people in all walks of life, in all parts of the world, in all levels of power and interest have seen the fact that uncertainty is with us and that you can't escape it. So you might as well make friends with it and figure out how to act in it. And is it is it your experience through your global conversations and your experience that that level of um, understanding that uncertainty is with us has been heightened and there's more awareness because of COVID and through the experiences that people are having? The the patterns that I'm seeing and the reason that COVID has exaggerated them um, is that we knew that things were speeding up. We knew that processes were faster and technology was faster and global communications were faster. So we knew that things were speeding up, but in COVID, that just went into hyperdrive and the shifts that we've seen have been amazing. And the, the second thing was that structures are breaking down that traditions and institutional structures and practices and sets of assumptions that we've held for a very long time are just not serving us well. And they're beginning to break down. Structural racism is one example. And COVID certainly exaggerated that. And then the last thing has to do with differentiating that We used to live in circles and societies that we imagined were pretty homogeneous, that we could think that the person who lived next door or across the street was pretty much like us, and we didn't really need to worry about how different they were. In fact, it was a little rude to think about how different they were. But in these days, 
recognizing and acknowledging and, as we say, harvesting the energy indifference has become a success strategy. In fact, a survival strategy. And the and COVID has amplified in so many ways the social inequities, the differences, nation to nation, industry to industry, profession to profession, person to person. And so those three factors really, which I think had been underlying and had been evolving since the 1980s, that COVID just brought them all together and put them under a microscope. That speeding up, the falling apart, and the differentiation that we're seeing in so many things that we work in. I definitely relate to things speeding up and also slowing down in some ways. I think, and maybe it's just through the work that we've been doing, I think part of the support that we've been offering to OD folk is to help them slow down, to try and find a balance in between the increased pace of work um, I think structures have broken down to some extent. Also in COVID, we saw quite formal structures of emergency response pop up. And so there was a lot of OD activity that was happening there to think about how do we still retain um, flatter structures, even within a, you know, a gold command structure. And difference, I think, is something that we've been trying to amplify for a long time. I don't think we've done enough. We haven't maybe done it deep enough or fast enough. And I, I think that that gives us some a more accelerant to try and bring that more to the surface. Yeah, no, I definitely, I think it does resonate with our experience in the NHS. And as we come through, a, you know, another wave of COVID, I echo what you're just saying, Paul. And also I think there was that breaking down of um, structures and ways of working and now that collaboration trying to get the balance of what will now work with very pressurized services still covid recovery etc and that i i get a sense from our od community that people are really as our, our organizations and systems finding their way with that how do we make sense and take the lessons that we might learn um, about the you know the speed of things and how are we agile and how do we really make a difference doing that and I think that's we're still um, you know grappling with that still trying to make some sense of that complexity as it's so fast moving. And Glenda, do you think we can ever go back to normal? I hear it a lot. People saying, "I just want things to go back to normal." Do you think we can go through this in complexity terms and go back? In complex systems, there's an arrow of time and it only goes forward. So one of my favorite complexity scientists talked about the arrow of time and said, theoretically and mathematically, you could go backwards in time, but it would take an infinite amount of energy. Even if change had been small, even in the old ordinary times, you couldn't go back. You can only go forward based on where you are today. And I believe that we have all gone through so many transformations, some that we're aware of and some that we won't know for years, that to undo and to go back is simply not going to happen. I also don't really believe that there's a new normal. Um, I don't think that we're going to get to a plateau 
and find a place that's going to be stable going forward. I don't think this is a freeze, unfreeze, refreeze kind of moment. I think that we're really shifting into another phase so that what we're coming to recognize is whatever is the next normal and then the next normal and then the next normal. And that that process of asking ourselves, so what's normal today is going to become a practice and a habit. It's part of the reason that we do the power of questions. So I ask myself every morning, so what's the next normal? What's going to be normal for the next 24 hours or sometimes for the next two hours? Um, and so that's the practice about how do we create the future here and now, whatever it's going to be. And that also strikes me as something that might make it more difficult for people to plan. If they're looking three, five, ten years ahead, how could complexity science help them to do that? We draw from complexity the idea of the way time works. And so if you think about the long term, about what might be possible, and you have a picture of the place that you want to go, it's not very precise, it's not very detailed, it's not very complete, but you have a a kind of hazy picture on the horizon about where you want to go. And you capture that in, in what we call a strategic framework, but it talks about where you want to go, what you want to be, and how you want that to look. And then you think about today's decisions, today's work, today's context, whatever it is you know here and now, and you see that through the frame of what you want to have happen. And so your planning is really two things. One is that long-term picture of what your end point is going to be or what your directionality is, and then a way to think in the moment how you'll make that happen today. And so the, the vision becomes more of um, a map than a future endpoint. Um, and so what that means is that you do consideration as a whole about identity, about perspective, about relationship that you want to create. And then each person within that context is responsible to make their own decisions and take their own actions through simple rules, through shared perspective, through adaptive action. So it's a radically different way to think about planning. That's one of the reasons why the OD traditions are so important these days, because that approach to planning requires authentic presence. It requires dialogue, speaking and listening. It requires a a critical stance about what is possible and what is not possible in the moment. I think it's a lovely way to describe that. I really like that arrow of time with a map and then for our OD practitioners being able to really use their that skill and that practice. And and I wonder with all your vast experience and your connection sort of globally is there any, any other uh, settings or sectors or countries that you think that would be helpful or would resonate for us in the NHS? Yes, I'm doing some work now with um, collaboratives for health in rural settings in Georgia, in the southern United States. And these are very poor communities very racially segregated communities, 
far distant from any kind of urban setting, financially just isolated. And the plan was to bring collaboratives together in those communities to build uh, racial equity and health. And as I talked with them, I began to see some reflections of what I've seen in the NHS and what I've seen in public health and in the Centers for Disease Control, and even, even in South Africa, was the need for people to think about possibilities and the power that's in possibility. And so the distinction that I made for them was that we see two kinds of power. One is what we might call the power of privilege, which has money and position and uh, privilege and the kind of power that we're accustomed to, of being able to do what you want to do when you want to do it and make everybody else toe the line, the power of privilege. But the power that we're needing to have now is, is what I shared with them is the power of possibility. And that comes from networks and relationships, an understanding of culture and history, a concern for the local space, and a real commitment to long-term sustainability of what is there. And that power of possibility, those communities that had always seen themselves as being powerless because they didn't have the other stuff, but they are so rich in the power of possibility. And these collaboratives that are coming together are leveraging that and seeing how they can move forward. Not from, oh, we wish we had a lot of power. Oh, we should get power. Somebody should give us a lot of money and a lot of standing. But instead, it is given the gifts that we have and this power that we have of knowing each other for generations and committing to each other for future generations. How can we use those as possibilities for getting work done? And that that shift is one that I've seen as being really powerful in times of COVID in emergency rooms in Canada, where physicians who are just totally overrun begin to see how they can pass their power and their perspective and their decision-making using simple rules and other things to other people. And so that there's a possibility that shows up in the ER community that was not there before. And I believe this is what happened during COVID in the NHS, that there was a power of possibility that emerged at many different scales. And the work that we've done collecting information from leaders um, in the NHS has indicated that they saw something happening then, uh, a kind of power of possibility that emerged in the moment. I wonder if that resonates with what the two of you are seeing. I really like that. I think that's a, just a really fantastic way of framing that, that power of possibility and adding collaboration and networks. Because I think what we heard from our OD community was that some of the real positives and ways of working through COVID and continue is that focus on uh, collaboration and networks and, you know, moving across the bureaucracies to be able to do that. And so that relational power became so important. I, I mean, I love the frame of thinking about it through the power of possibilities. It's something that we've been, 
I want to say struggling with, but maybe it hasn't been a struggle for some. I don't know. I, I, I guess what we pick up is that the shift from individual organisational working to working as a collective collaborative system, which is the direction of travel for the NHS, has been a, a long time coming and not a very straight line. And I think what we saw during COVID was people starting to move out of their silos and work together more collaboratively. And they came together through a shared purpose. And also there was a real sense of wanting to help each other. What we've picked up in the past is that often people will talk about working collaboratively, talk about working in systems when they're in the room together, but then they'll go back to their individual organisations and then suddenly it's like, oh, actually, but we need to be the ones that survive or win or get the money or recruit the person. Now, the, the move to systems working is still carrying on. You know, that, that arrow of time is still pointing forward. And I think the concept of power is fascinating in that because people who are used to having power in their own organisations coming together with their peers don't have the same access to power. So in, in that system of collaboration, Glenda, do you think that there are different ways that people can experience the ability to make things happen if they can't rely on their traditional power bases? Mm. Yes, and. So part of what I think happened in COVID was that the because of the urgency and because of the focus, that collaboration became really easy and powerful and great. And the other kind of power, the structural power of privilege, was kind of put on the back burner. Now, as you come out of or between COVID waves, the two kinds of power are sitting there side by side. And it's a negotiation then. So before it was really clear that it was the power of privilege that was running things. And during COVID, it was pretty clear that the power of possibility was all you had. And now, how do you stand between those two in that polarity and decide in any moment where's the right place to be? And it's not, it's not either or. It's not even both and, because you can't have them both in the same moment. But we say it's which one, how much, and when. So how do you slide back and forth from one to the other? And I, I think the, the capacity that you need is one to be able to see that pattern, to know that that is the challenge, the possibility, and to see it together, to have tools to be able to see it together. And then to be able to assess the benefits and the risks and where we are now and what's happening now and to talk about what's possible. And then to take action as quickly as possible, because if you don't, the system's going to move off and leave you. And so how do you do that cycle of seeing and understanding and taking action quickly enough and collectively enough that it doesn't just turn into chaos? So that those skills of seeing, understanding, and influencing quickly, being able to inquire and to listen, and then to move into action. Um, we believe are the, the capacities that are going to, we call, we call that adaptive capacity. It's the ability to adapt in any moment to what might be possible. And that includes stepping into traditional structural power when it's possible. Glenda, what proportion of your time do you think you spend comforting people? Because I love 
the approach that you take, and I, I just think it makes so much sense and it feels so alive. And yet I'm wondering if you encounter senior leaders, boards, chief executives who are just so gripped in the headlights of delivery. How, how could you, how could we as OD practitioners support our senior colleagues to try and develop more of this adaptive capacity when they may have been trained or kind of brought up in a different paradigm of leading? What I find is that when, when someone is in that moment of darkness, knowing they need to move forward, not knowing how to, tied in those unrealistic, impossible expectations from themselves and others, that moment of um, stress, that to allow them and to help them to open up a world to more possibilities, expand the space that they're looking at, think about the system rather than that moment, or think about the larger group or differences that they've not seen before, connecting with them, that that is such a comforting thing to kind of place them in a larger world through through inquiry. And that that is what I find helps people breathe. We, are, um, we were teaching a leadership program for British Columbia in Canada, leaders from across the whole province had been in a face-to-face leadership development program with us when COVID hit. And we finished it with a series of online reflective sessions. Um, And one of those physicians came to a session when he was a medical director for a northern part of the province. There were fires that were coming toward hospitals and elder care facilities he was having to evit uh to move people out of those spaces and into safer places some of them were alzheimer sufferers many of them had covid and he was having to mix covid and non-covid patients just to get them out of the line of the fire and he came to the session just um holding it together but just barely And he said at the end, I feel like I can breathe. (laughs) I feel like I can breathe. Um, And when he went back, it wasn't that the fire had stopped or that the COVID had stopped or that those, those poor people with Alzheimer's weren't being moved to a completely strange and frightening place. Um, But he felt that the world was wide enough that he could hold that and hold the people who were holding it. Um, We do find that working in trauma is more important. We're beginning to think of it as trauma-informed OD. And the the practices that are used in trauma-informed care, what happened to you? Not what's the matter with you or what do you want to do or whatever, but what happened to you? And then pretty quickly, so what is the current situation? So where are you now? So what are the issues? So what's pulling on you now? And now what is possible? What can you do, given your past, given your present, given the urge for action right now? What, what's possible? What can you do? And then you do it. Um, and that kind of trauma-informed care, we find, brings a kind of 
comfort. It acknowledges what's there, but it also brings a possibility for moving forward. I think that's such brilliant um, guidance or advice, Bender. And I was just thinking about, um, you know, your example of your medic, that we all need our oxygen. And I think people working in OD as well need that, don't they? That oxygen giving that space, that place to breathe. We also did uh, Power of Questions with a group of physicians, and their wicked issue was, how can I treat one patient, COVID patient, who dies, and then walk to the next room and care for the next one with no time in between? And they were physicians, and they were uh, nurses, and they were administrators in hospitals. And the physician who had brought that question of course, we were all weeping by the end. But what he said was, what I realized is that I need some more words for grief. I don't have enough words for what it is that I'm feeling. And I need just to think about and talk about what are some more words for the grief that I feel in that moment to be able to carry it with me and not to let it consume me as I go to the next room. So maybe that's part of what we do in giving care and comfort is helping people find words for what it is they're feeling. And how would we go about expanding our vocabulary to find those words if we're also struggling with it ourselves? Is there a way that we can co-create some of these conversations together? Well, for me, it goes back to inquiry. What are the questions that we ask that open up possibility, not blaming questions, but that challenge what might be. I also think storytelling is very important, the idea of the narrative and for people to be able to tell their stories um, and to create their stories, really, that we are creating the narratives that we're carrying and how do we help people find the patterns that are life-giving in that, in whatever moment it is, so that they're amplifying the things that are life-giving and learning. Um, not ignoring or damping the things that are painful, but finding possibility in them. We've begun, about three years ago, we started a program in Patterns with Death. We had an associate who um, was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. And they told him he had months and then years and then... But Michael decided that he was going to use... HSD through his process of death and to think about in any moment what was happening, so what was possible, then what he was he going to do to establish patterns for himself and his family and his community so that they would persist in a healthy way when he was gone and that that too fed his health. And so this movement of patterns with death started then. And he has, he has since died, but left us <clears throat> with this lovely picture of what it means to have patterns with death. And it's, <clears throat> it's coming back to life now. Uh, people are beginning to find it and say, we need, we need new ways to mourn. We need new ways to make sense of this crazy mortality and systemic transformation that we're living through. Um, 
and to think about what are those patterns and how do those patterns emerge is great. You can find it on the website. There's some lovely videos of people telling their stories of their own mourning, preparing for death, losing a spouse in that moment. I just, there's something about letting people retell their stories in a way that brings forward the strength and possibility in them. That's so powerful, Glenda, to hear that and that work that uh, Michael did and has that legacy that's been left, isn't it, and continuing. That sense of inquiry in your mind, Glenda, what do you think is next for you? Well, there are three things that we're working on, but one of them is racial equity. We have always tiptoed around racial diversity, believing that it was someone else's work that we would do as we do, but that a dive into and a focus on that, we're pretty white and female and Western and that our own cultures really didn't prepare us for that. And yet we're realizing that these tools that we have developed and applied over the years are very well suited for conversations about racial equity and diversity. And many of the people who have been working in Black Lives Matter and um, as you may know, I live in Minneapolis, and so many of our near associates were involved in the George Floyd response and continued to work in the neighborhood uh, to build capacity in response to that. And And they are taking with them the HSD tools. And not only is it transforming their conversations in community, it's also transforming the tools. And so that is a place of our deep deep learning. So racial equity is one. A second is sustainability. Um, I know you guys are young, but I'm getting old. And, uh, <laughs> and so we're, we're thinking and talking about what, how, what is the next, uh, what are the next life patterns of HSD? Um, and we've been doing some futuring and thinking about the, the far future and the near future. And the, the third thing is really connecting international voices around the world. One of the things that we've seen in our futuring is that activities, learning, meaning-making is going to be radically local, individuals and the people they know, and radically global, connecting networks, sharing resources, sharing learnings at a global level across boundaries that we can't even imagine anymore. And so that idea about weaving international networks, putting people in touch with common interests from common places, um, and weaving that global network. So those are those are the three things that we're uh, kind of preoccupied with ourselves these days. And given that your your work on the, on those three sort of you know fantastic key areas, and your knowledge of the NHS, what, what would there, is there any advice or wisdom that you would share for our OD practitioners as we continue to look at our future and as we move towards more system working? And you know, you'll you'll I know that you you know have a really good understanding of some of the NHS. Is there any? wise words that you would um, share with us? I think it has to do with adaptive capacity. So to build and to support individuals to have the capacity to adapt, to build teams so that they're able to 
see and respond quickly, to build structures, institutional, organizational structures, even across silos inside and outside of institutions. That adaptive capacity, whatever that means and wherever it comes, is what I believe is going to bring us health in the future. So I think for each of us to think about, well, what is adaptive capacity for my, for me and my, my clients in this moment, and how can I help build it? And I don't know what that would look like, but I hope that each of you might have an idea about what that might look like for you and where you are. Huge thanks to Glenda for this wonderful conversation. I loved how Glenda offered us the opportunity to reframe complexity, not just as a concept, but as a practice. And I'm really going to think about how I can integrate that into my work so that complexity is a way of being rather than something to fix. There was so much. It was such a rich conversation. I was particularly struck by how much we use adaptive thinking and our OD practice and our power to influence and turn up the dial on this. The power of questions, the power of inquiry, and brilliantly, the power of possibility. Thanks so much for listening to this DuoD podcast. We'd love to know what you think. You can chat to us on Twitter at NHSE underline DuoD, or email your thoughts to DuoD at NHSEmployers.org and Google NHS DuoD for all of the resources on our website. We look forward to welcoming you to our next episode.